Japan's Emperor Naruhito has formally proclaimed his ascension to the throne at an elaborate ceremony attended by dignitaries from around the world. Naruhito pledged to fulfill his duty as a symbol of the state at the Imperial Palace in Tokyo. The new emperor took the title earlier this year after the abdication of his father, Akihito, but this ceremony cements his transition to the throne. Japan's government has pardoned more than half a million people convicted of petty crimes to mark the occasion. Naruhito is the last emperor in the world's oldest hereditary monarchy. So let's take a look back now at his life up to this point. The eldest son of then-crown prince Akihito, Naruhito entered the world already an heir apparent. But though his fate was clear, his journey to the throne has been one of many firsts. He was the first crown prince to be born after the Second World War, and unlike those that came before him, the new emperor-in-waiting grew up at home with his family raised solely by his parents. After attending an elite school in Tokyo, Naruhito became the first Japanese prince to study abroad, reading medieval European history and economics at Oxford University. He brings to the throne an unusually broad range of experience for Japanese royalty. Back in Japan, he wooed and won the affection of Masaka Owada, a Harvard and Oxford-educated diplomat. She reluctantly agreed to abandon her career to marry in 1993. But over the years, Masako battled depression and was eventually diagnosed with adjustment disorder. Naruhito promised to protect her with all his might from the strains of royal life. The pair had a baby girl, Princess Aiko, in 2001. The devoted father, Naruhito, was often seen attending her school and sporting events. Under the current law, as a girl, Aiko cannot be next in line. Naruhito's brother, Crown Prince Akishino, currently holds that title. But for now, all the attention remains on the new emperor. Naruhito says he wants to carry on his father's devotion to peace and compassion for the people. He ascends the throne as Japan's 126th emperor, marking the start of a new imperial era known as Reiwa. Listening to episode 10 of Against Japanism podcast. Today we have Max Ward joining us to discuss his book Thought Crime Ideology and State Power in Interwar Japan about the Japanese state's effort to suppress revolutionary movements and facilitate the ideological transformation of their participants through the peace preservation law in the 1920s and the 1930s. We begin our interview by discussing the elusive concept of kokutai, loosely translated as national polity or national essence, through a metaphor of the ghost in the machine, the ideology of imperial sovereignty that animated the Japanese state and its application of the peace preservation law. While the law was intended to criminalize anybody who sought to, quote, alter the kokutai, unquote, because of the term's ambiguity, the legislators, police, and justice officials had to interpret it on a case-by-case basis. 
The previous scholars have interpreted this ambiguity as a problem that should not have been brought into the legal rationality of the law. However, Dr. Ward argues that it was this very ambiguity that constituted the logic of imperial sovereignty and imperial ideology, which stipulated that Japan shall be governed by, quote, a line of emperors unbroken for ages eternal, unquote. We then trace the change in the applications of this law from outright suppression of anarchists, communists, and anti colonial activists to their, quote, rehabilitation, unquote, and ideological conversion known as Tenko, where tens of thousands of activists renounced revolutionary politics and declared their support for Japanese imperialism and fascism as loyal imperial subjects. This has in turn Reinforced the image of the imperial sovereign's supposed benevolence towards its wayward subject. Through the theories of Louis Althusser, Michel Foucault, and Nico Polancis, he challenges the claim made by advocates of peace preservation law and the previous scholars alike that the seemingly nonviolent use of ideology to rehabilitate the so called political criminals. Suggests more benign and genus faced character of the pre war criminal justice system. Rather, the Tenko phenomena shows that power operates through both coercion and manufacturing of consent, as many converts supposedly chose to convert on their own volition through guidance and assistance by community organizations like the Imperial Renovation Society, which acted as what Althusser called Ideological state apparatuses. By citing a similar de radicalization program used against a group of Somali American men in the US in the mid 2010s, he argues that how the peace preservation law was applied is by no means unique to Japan, but universal in how power operates through boss repression and ideology. We discuss how the notion of Japanese spirit and the supposed uniqueness of Japanese culture was mobilized in the mass conversion of rank and file activists in the Japanese Communist Party. We question whether the pre war JCP grappled sufficiently with the national question, as shown in the conversion of its leaders, Sanomanabu and Nabeyama Sadachika, into socialism in one country. An appropriation of Stalin's argument for defense of the Soviet Union into a type of national socialism, as well as how some historians reproduce this nationalist discourse. We discussed the difference in the application of peace preservation law in the metropole and the colonies, what the history of the peace preservation law tells us about the rise of fascism in Japan, and its relationship with liberalism. And how the Japanese state sought to popularize Tenko as part of the mass mobilization during World War II, culminating in the Thought War exhibition at department stores across the Japanese Empire. We conclude our interview by discussing topics such as how the legacy of peace preservation law and thought policing in interwar Japan. Influenced the development of police power in post war and present day Japan, 
such as the Subversive Activities Prevention Law and Anti-Conspiracy Law that was passed in 2017, and the Imperial Households Continued Involvement in Criminal Reform. The representation of Tenko in Endo Shusaku's novel Silence and its film adaptation by Martin Scorsese in 2016. A similarity between Tenko and the rightward drift by former leftists, as seen in the online discourse about red patriotism and how the emperor system works in Japan today. Without further ado, Here is an Against Japanism podcast interview with Max Ward. Enjoy. So, my name is Max Ward. I'm associate professor of history at Middlebury College in Vermont,、uh, in the United States.、Um, my specialty is、uh, the modern history of Japan.、Um, I write and teach on Uh, various topics, including modern Japanese history, pre modern Japanese history,、uh, social and critical theory,、uh, as well as、uh, modern East Asia、uh, and the Japanese Empire. I'm very much、uh, thankful for、uh, your invitation to speak with you about、uh, my book,、uh, Thought Crime, Ideology, and State Power in Interwar Japan. Yeah, thank you so much for coming on, Dr. Max Ward. So, in your book, You characterize the emperor system in the pre war period as the ghost in the machine. To highlight the contradictions underlying the development of the elusive idea of Koktai that legitimized the creation of the peace preservation law. What is Koktai, and why did you decide to use this metaphor to theorize its development over time? That is. A very large question. And it probably would take me uh, about uh, as much time as it took to write the book to answer. But yes,、um, Kukotai, it, in and of itself, has a very interesting conceptual history.、Um, it's been invested with various meanings、uh, and has been utilized、uh, for different political projects. Uh, including some kind of、mm, somewhat ambiguous socialist politics as well in the early 20th century.、Um, but in general,、um, at least for、uh, the English speaking audience of this podcast, it's, it's often translated as、uh, national polity or sometimes in its more ambiguous meaning national essence. So it's, it's something about the nation, but it's not about. You know, formal sovereign territory, but it's more about kind of the core or the essence of the nation, what constitutes the nation.、Um, and in my book, of course, I follow other scholars who have studied and debated how this term was used in the peace preservation law.、Um, basically, the law criminalized anybody who was planning to alter the Kokutai. But of course, legislators and then police officials and justice officials、uh, had to interpret what this meant in case by case basis.、Um, and what I argue in the book is in the legislative debates and afterwards, previous scholars have looked at the Kokutai as kind of an ambiguous term, and its ambiguity was the problem, and it shouldn't have been brought into the legal rationality of. The law. 
but I'm actually arguing against that. And I show that when legislators were defining the use of this term in the law, they continually pointed to imperial sovereignty, that the emperor, or actually the, the unbroken line of emperors for ages eternal, uh, was the sovereign of the modern uh, imperial state. And so it was really a question of sovereignty that was being kind of, uh, you know, was a problem within how legislators were kind of trying to define this law to be used against communists and anarchists and anti-colonial activists uh, in colonial Korea. But whereas previous scholars have kind of focused on the ambiguity, and that's what they did was they kind of put the the burden of, of this law and explain how this law could have been so misused um, to really suppress a lot of opposition uh, in the 1930s to militarism uh, and other things. They, they put a lot of the burden on that to the ambiguity of the term, but actually in the book, I argue actually what they're arguing is, and, and what was being kind of interpreted over and over again, was the nature of imperial sovereignty itself. So it was really coming back to the the constitution of, of the imperial nation state, both with the emperor as kind of the sovereign of the government that was enacting this law to protect him and the tenose or the emperor system, as well as the imperial subjects uh, who were supposed to act uh, loyally too. So it was that logic um, that was at work in the law rather than some kind of uh, extra judicial or extra, you know, constitutional kind of ambiguity that other scholars have attributed to the term. As, as to the second point of the question, why do I use the metaphor of ghost in the machine to kind of explore the law, is I wanted to um, grapple with some of the theoretical questions about how we understand ideology, and, and this gets to my kind of turn to Althusserian theories of ideology, as well as how ideology kind of takes on uh, and informs institutional processes and their transformations over time. And so the ghost in the machine uh, metaphor was really about the imperial sovereign as kind of the ghost that was breathing life into this criminal uh, apparatus that was being used to prosecute supposedly uh, criminals who were threatening the imperial sovereign. So I was trying to kind of grapple with this dialectic between the ideology and the, and the significance of some of these terms that were being brought into, and then the kind of institutional apparatus that, that was born from this, and, and how the ideology actually transformed over time as this apparatus started processing uh, political criminals. And so, whereas earlier scholarship really focused on how the police and how justice officials suppressed political criminals um, and, you know, what happened to the political criminals, how they might have changed their ideas under duress uh, during uh, prosecution. Uh, what I wanted to do was kind of turn the law against itself and try and think how we can reinterpret these documents to see what it's telling us about the ideology that is informing the imperial state itself and its criminal apparatus. So I wanted to kind of read it for that and how this criminal apparatus became kind of one of the ways in which we can understand the transformations of imperial ideology in the 1920s and 1930s. If I understand it correctly, the idea was that, um, you know, imperial sovereignty or 
idea of the koktai itself is it's very vulnerable uh, in, need, in need of protection, but at the same time, it's omnipresent. You know, it's like everywhere. Is that the sort of underlying contradiction? Sure, sure. I mean, you know, the interesting thing is there there were debates about other anti-radical laws before and the categories that were being used within those laws in the early 1920s. And an issue for some legislators was that some of these terms might be used to curtail academic research or might curtail um, legislative proposals that were you know, trying to reform certain aspects of the Japanese government at the time. And they were concerned that the law might you know, apply to these things that that could fall under the purview. And, and the interesting thing is, is in response to those criticisms, uh, justice officials, and it was primarily the justice ministry that really kind of turned to this, um, they used this term kokutai. Now, the interesting thing about kokutai is it's not used in the Constitution. So it's not used in the 1889 Constitution in order to mean imperial sovereignty. But they 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 use this term in kind of response to criticisms of other terms that were being used in earlier drafts of these kind of political crime bills that were being proposed. And it's somewhat generally accepted. Um, you know, some people say, well, you know, I don't necessarily know what this term means, but people say, well, this really just signifies that you know, sovereignty resides with the unbroken line of emperors, ages eternal, as it says in Article One of the Meiji Constitution. And that seems to somewhat alleviate the, the concerns over the terms being used in these laws. That's, that's kind of the paradox there, at least at the legislative stage of when they were proposing this law. And so you can go through the imperial diet records and read these debates over it. And, and what is curious is, how much time is spent looking at other aspects of the law, but a, somewhat of a general agreement on the term kokutai, at least as far as it's being defined as signifying imperial sovereignty. What I find interesting also is that how this very idea of kokutai is formed in response in a sort of dialectical fashion to the threat of communism and a revolutionary organizing that was happening in Japan at the time and how uh, anti-communism is very foundational to this idea, but also the emperor system itself. Yeah. The thing that, and many scholars have noted this, this is nothing new with, with my, with my own research, but a lot of the, the scholars who've worked on the peace preservation law have noted this development. When you look at the various bills and how it's being explained within diet committees that are deliberating this bill as it's kind of being revised um, before going to vote is that there's somewhat of a struggle of these officials to really understand what communism is vis-a-vis socialism uh, as well as anarchism uh, and particularly Bolshevik uh, internationalism and, and the threat that is posed through the communist international So what you had was a very kind of crude explanation early on. So the the two real infringements of the law um, that actually passes uh, in 1925, and it's actually codified in laws, one is alter the kokutai. 
And the other is to deny the, the system of private property. So those are the two infringements in the law. And what's interesting is at the very beginning, they said, well, you know, the infringement of private property is going to be applied to communists because they want to, you know, seize the means of production and the private property system and, and redistribute wealth. And it's going to be towards the anarchists that the alter the Kolkatai infringement will be applied. And, you know, it's some loose conception that, well, the anarchists want to overthrow the state and have a stateless society. And somehow Kolkatai is going to stand in for, for that to be criminalized. Um, however, the deny the system of private property infringement is hardly ever applied in a, in a peace preservation law case, particularly into the 1930s. And, and that's particularly because by the late 1920s, the Japanese Communist Party um, has a thesis of abolishing the emperor system. And this then falls under in you know justice interpretations that this will then fall under the alter the Kolkatai infringement. And so um, what you have is an eclipse, let's say, of the deny the private property system infringement with, with now the alter the Kolkatai infringement, which becomes kind of the, the central infringement of the law by the late 1920s. But it took, you know, it took some trials, it, it took some court decisions, it took some Supreme Court interpretations to, to kind of come to this moment um, by the late 20s and into the early 1930s that alter the Kolkatai is, is the main infringement. But the, you know, it should be noted that there is this deny the system of private property infringement that that's in the original law and continues to be so, even though it's it's hardly ever applied. Yeah, that's uh, interesting. Throughout the book, you trace the development of the application of, of this law. And as you point out in the book, the law was initially founded to suppress the revolutionaries, jail them, get them off the street, so to speak. But it shifts towards trying to convince them to defect and renounce Marxism and eventually moves on to the idea of rehabilitation and turning them into royal imperial subjects. And you use the theories of uh, Louis Althusser, mm -hmm. Michel Foucault, and Nico Polansis to, to illustrate this process. How are these theories useful in understanding the peace preservation law and Tenko phenomena? And how do you, your use of these theories distinguish your work from the previous literature on thought policing in interwar Japan? Sure. I, I think suggested in your question is is um exactly my my original intention was you know as one writes a book like this you somewhat are anticipating your audience and and because i knew uh that there's been a lot of writings on the peace preservation law um it's been debated quite a bit and written about um from various angles um that i i kind of had this literature in mind when i was thinking okay how do i distinguish my work from the others and the reason why I turned to uh, Althusser, Foucault, and Palancis is one to kind of really strike a, a intervention in, in that literature, um, as well as to also bring the peace preservation law because um, uh, its transformations are extremely complex, and there's a, a very large archive that is tracing um, how officials were thinking about this, 
uh, the records of the people who were arrested underneath this and the various institutions that emerged out of it, I thought then the law could be uh, kind of used to uh, actually also enter into the theoretical debates that are about, you know, the relationship between Althusser and Foucault. I mean, that's, you know, that's a contested claim right there. A lot of people would actually say that there is no connection or there is no kind of conversation happening um, uh, between Althusser and Foucault. Uh, and also what Palance's um, later kind of interventions in the differences between how Althusser and Foucault are kind of conceiving of power in the state. Um, So previously, the common kind of explanation of this law and why it shifts from a, at least initially conceived as a repressive law to be used to suppress these political threats against either state and property, to then a law that nurtures um, a criminal reform program in which many of those who are arrested under the law don't even face trial, but are given the opportunity to contemplate their their supposed criminal activity, which happens to be their political affiliations, um, and to renounce those uh, and to uh, kind of reform themselves uh, through these institutions. So the previous explanation on a lot of the English language literature has been, you know, there's something unique to Japan and there's something unique to its criminal rehabilitation program and its criminal justice system. And, you know, there's something culturally unique to Japan that allowed for uh, these dangerous communists to return to some kind of Japanese self-consciousness, national consciousness. And, the you know one one of the main scholars that have focused on the peace preservation law, you know, has kind of talked about. He had to contend with the fact that the law was both uh, repressive. I mean, there were people who were killed under police interrogation under the law, but also had this criminal reform element. And so the thing that you keep on seeing in a lot of the literature is that this is almost kind of a schizophrenic system, you know, what one scholar, Richard Mitchell, calls a a Janus-faced system. It's facing both ways. It's facing towards the repressive end, and it's facing kind of the reform end. But this doesn't really grapple with, you know, what's the logic that is working between these two? And I think this is why Althusser's um, theory of ideological state apparatuses and repressive state apparatuses uh, may be useful. Um, and particularly Poulance's uh, additions to that and qualifications of Althusser, um, you know, talking about how different apparatuses can take on either repressive or ideological functions. And here, what I'm thinking, um, particularly because the, the law is being used to suppress um, political organization because they have certain intentions to alter the Kolkatai, that it really revolves around a person's supposed motivations and these kinds of things and and how ideology kind of works on that uh, within these reform apparatuses once they're detained, uh, possibly in jail if they've been prosecuted, um, uh, to reflect on these things. And so I I thought that Althusser and and Poulantz kind of help us to somewhat, uh, I'm trying to think of the, the right term, I want to recognize the particularities of the peace preservation law um, both, and, this, and the Japanese state apparatus, the imperial state apparatus, uh, as well as the experiences of Japan in the 1920s and 30s. And, and there's 
particularities um, there. But I also don't think that the kinds of power that were manifest within these systems against the, the political criminals um, is explained away by saying it was Japanese because there's a lot of unsaid assumptions that are going on there. And actually, I think, you know, many states um, to varying degrees and the operative term there is to varying degrees. I think uh, we can find many examples of states um, applying some kind of combination between suppression uh, and rehabilitation, uh, particularly when the crimes are being defined in some way as kind of a almost a thought crime or you know some crimes of motivations or dispositions or political kind of affiliations, you know, right now what we would call radicalization, et cetera. Um, that I that I think you can bring this apparatus uh, into comparison, um, you know, with others. But before doing that kind of comparative work, I think, you know, first you do need to just kind of establish that there's this kind of general logic uh, playing out within the law. And and I thought that one way to kind of start that conversation was to draw upon the theories of Althusser, Foucault, and Palancis, not necessarily just to apply them haphazardly onto the Japanese case, but to kind of use them in, in a more kind of complex way in order to kind of disrupt the conventional explanation in English language sources about the peace preservation law and what was happening in its institutions. Yeah, another thing that I really liked about your work is that you, you know, highlight that how this law is applied is not cultural trait unique to to Japan. And that's something that I try to challenge in this podcast is to challenge the overall claim that there's something exceptionally unique or different about Japan. And you do that in the preface of your book. You talk about a group of uh, Somali youth who are, uh, I believe, charged with terrorism. And they're uh, put through a similar process of like rehabilitation. And sort of in the post 9-11, sort of like the anti-terror political climate in that context. Yeah. And I thought that was really helpful in understanding how power works in different t- time and place and uh, Althusser's idea of like combining repression and ideology. We see that also happening in this, the so-called community policing and how that how the state used boss carrots and sticks, so to speak, um, is yeah, it's a kind yeah, of universal, the, um, yeah, yeah. You, you you know the the discussion in the preface was just meant as a provocation. Um, it's interesting that not a lot of traction came out of that Minneapolis experiment. The the defendants were assessed to the degree of danger that their ideas posed. Um, I think that's really important to stress that basically they brought in experts that worked on, you know, this kind of new area that we're calling radicalization studies and de-radicalization programs. They brought in foreign experts to interview uh, these suspects. Now these suspects were arrested trying to travel um, to Syria or other areas. And so, you know, they weren't apprehended on the battlefield, but they were apprehended just trying to travel too. And so already their actions, you know, have this motivation built into it, at least as far as the criminal justice system is concerned. And then it becomes, you know, the experts are called in. 
supposedly experts that have been working in a field called radicalization. They have to assess these people's ideas. Now, the thing is, is the countering violent extremism programs that were developed under the Obama administration and, and oftentimes were working in tandem with um, European uh, organizations that were also looking at um, the problem of quote unquote homegrown extremists um, or homegrown terrorists um, and why possibly some immigrant youth could be radicalized, um, uh, et cetera. The, a lot of those programs, they developed further in Europe, but they didn't develop so much in the US. But I do point to that case. It was much closer to the time of the publication of the book. And, and I think it still raised questions as just a provocation, as you say, that we can maybe see these as states implementing things to varying degrees, but we can't say it's a qualitatively different um, experiment. And in fact, a lot of the discourse around it is the same. And um, again, the provocation was just to try and dislodge um, the alibi uh, that has informed Japanese studies uh, here in North America for half a century, if not longer, of just reverting to cultural explanations, assuming that we know what that is, um, when dealing with political or ideological or criminal reform or police systems, et cetera, you know, that the everybody reverts to this question of, well, it's just Japanese culture, and that's how we can explain it. And that doesn't explain anything, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, back to Japan, though, uh, you include the profiles of some uh, people who went through the conversion uh, Tenko process, you know, former communists who one way or another abandoned their ideology, became supporters of Japanese imperialism and fascism. I'm wondering if you could quickly summarize the examples that you used. Sure. For, re- for readers who haven't read the book, like I think these are really interesting stories. Yes. The, the conversion process or conversion itself came up under the rubric of, of Tenkel, and this becomes then a policy of ideological conversion that's implemented under the peace preservation law. This becomes codified by 1936, but it's actually being practiced much earlier, sometimes under different names. But it's really after 1933 that this term encapsulates all the the various motivations and reasons for one either breaking with the Japanese Communist Party or discarding with their political thoughts um, or ideologies um, and then starting the process of reform. What, what I found interesting in this is a lot of the literature that focuses on this question of Tenkel really looks at intellectuals. And so they're looking at writers, they're looking at um, uh, intellectuals uh, who might have been either actually arrested or went through some kind of quote unquote thought conversion or ideological conversion voluntarily, you know, knowing that this pressure was out there. Um, what I wanted to do was emphasize in the book that most of the people that had gone through this criminal uh, rehabilitation program were rank and file uh, communists. And they wrote extensively on their experiences. And so you you, you have various people and, and probably the, the one that's most central to my own research is a gentleman by the name of Kobayashi Morito, who is a um, organizer in the countryside, increasingly becoming involved in socialist politics uh, in the 1910s, 1920s, 
Um, by the late 1920s, he joins the Japanese Communist Party only to be arrested. I, I believe it was only three months after he joined the party. And he's arrested in, in a nationwide roundup. And he is sentenced under the peace preservation law and from jail is starting to reflect on his years of organizing and his arrest and what kind of effect that's going to have on the family. And there's a few justice officials that are kind of overseeing his case. And there's a Buddhist chaplain that is kind of helping him work through uh, this kind of process of self-reflection. And he undergoes, you know, what we would call a conversion. He basically um, starts with the hardships that he's caused his family and his community um, by his political actions, he starts realizing that the uh, calm intern uh, may have assessed uh, the revolutionary possibilities in Japan uh, incorrectly. And it's from these bases that he then starts going through this kind of personal transformation. Um, he writes about this later, and he writes a biography. Uh, and it's called, the translation is something to the effect of up until leaving the communist party. So it's basically his process of coming to the decision to leave. And he publishes it under a pen name. He's writing it while he's in jail. Uh, He gets released from jail early uh, and he is brought in to one of these criminal reform organizations. And actually what it is, is it's a criminal reform organization in Tokyo that's dealing with people who are, released temporarily before they're indicted uh, or before they're actually sentenced uh, in order to give them some time to reflect under the guidance of these kind of semi-official groups. And he, so Kobayashi um, is released from jail, starts working for one of these organizations. And it's right at the time that a lot of other rank and file Japanese communists are reflecting on their activities and et cetera, et cetera. And thus this becomes kind of a center and Kobayashi becomes kind of a leader in guiding his fellow comrades to break with the party and to return to their families and return to their communities and help them find work. And these organizations help with mediating family troubles returning students to school, returning um, workers to to factories, um, et cetera, um, basically re- trying to rehabilitate them in, in various sectors of their lives. And it's and it's really people like Kobayashi Morito, who's like at, at the ground level, he himself has practiced this. He has drafted a biography that becomes somewhat the blueprint of how one goes about this and the trials and tribulations of this process. And he then serves as kind of the mouth mouthpiece and representative of these people who are going through this. He's advocating uh, for them and for more support services to be given to them, um, et cetera. And so in the book, I try and focus on people like that, Kobayashi Morito and others um, who are not intellectuals. They're not party theoreticians. They're not kind of some of the the famous people who went through this and, and wrote about it in sophisticated ways, but it's really these people who are kind of narrating their life biographies, which are structured around this narrative of conversion. And what I'm interested in is how these personal experiences are very much at the same time, you know, attached to these larger structures of power, these institutionalized criminal reform policies and how these biographies inform that, as well as how these 
criminal reform policies then start developing and solidifying these practices that a lot of rank and file uh, JCP members narrated in the early 1930s, and it really becomes an empire-wide policy by the mid-1930s. Yes, and the interesting aspect of this is that a lot of uh, these Tenkosha uh, people who converted sort of did it, you know, uh, supposedly on their own volition, right? Like they, it was, they came to their own conclusion, supposedly. And I think the use of the theories we discussed earlier, like Althusser, Foucault, uh, but Foucault in particular, I guess, uh, how they, you know, how these people came to govern themselves, so to speak, right? And, but there was a, really complex power, you know, how power works through these people and, you know, supposedly in the voluntary, but actually very much coordinated. And yeah, I I wonder if you could speak about that a little. Yeah, the the unfortunate thing is, is a lot of the English language material that is on this Tenko process, if it's not dealing with the intellectuals, if it is looking at the actual criminal reform policies, um, they almost take verbatim the explanations of the justice officials who are overseeing this, as well as the people who are practicing this. And they draw upon these materials as evidence, as explaining what this meant. And so, you know, there's almost, you know, there's no critical distance from this material trying to think about, you know, what, what's, what's taking place within these biographical narratives. And what I mean by that is, If you read this literature, which is, it should be said, being published by a publisher that works with the justice ministry, Um, it's not the justice ministry themselves, but it's a publisher that does work very closely with the justice ministry. The narratives are all the same in structure. Content is different because, you know, if it's a female Japanese Communist Party uh, member, she's going to narrate her process differently Uh, through her own experiences and also returning to being a good housewife. Uh, If it's an industrial worker, um, they're going to narrate this process in a different way, and they're returning to the factory, uh, working with their comrades for a better national economy. If they're intellectual, they're going to narrate it somewhat differently, but the structure is somewhat the same. And so a lot of these biographical narratives are really redundant at the level of narrative form. And I think it's at the level of narrative form that you can see the operations of power, you know, not saying that these people were coerced or duped into, that's too simplistic of an understanding of how power works, but that it's in the narrative form itself. And it's actually in the process of writing itself, writing these narratives that they are actually undergoing the transformations that they are supposedly reflecting upon that part of the process of how power is acting upon them is through their individual process, sitting in their cells, having a very personal relationship with the text that they're telling about themselves, you know, and they're telling their own story of these conversions. I think that's where, you know, you would get, um, and I think, you know, Foucault uh, and possibly maybe less so Althusser, but Foucault, you know, technologies of the self where, you know, one comes to govern oneself or, you know, through Althusser's theory of it's not that we have an idea that we then act upon, but a lot of the ideas are built into the actions themselves. You know, it's in these kind of rudimentary readings of Althusser of Foucault that we can then start understanding possibly how power is operating within what is supposedly being narrated as 
thousands upon thousands of individual experiences that people are arriving on their own volition. Mind you that they happen to be sitting in a jail cell. Mind you that they are being taken care of by a Buddhist chaplain, by justice officials. Uh, Mind you that they are also reading other biographies um, that are being distributed uh, within jail. But that in the end, it's their own conversion narrative that they're writing, but also enacting at the same time that they're writing. And so I, I think that's that's one of the interventions that the book is trying to make, uh, trying to draw our attention to that. I want to sort of, uh, we talked about the process of conversion uh, narrative and such, but I want to uh, move on to the sort of content of the, this ideological transformation that these people went through. Um, a lot of them became, uh, like I said previously, uh, supporters of Japanese imperialism. And the idea of the Japanese spirit and the uniqueness of Japanese culture was central to this process, this transformation. But I also, it kind of made me think, like, like you said, uh, these people are not the hardcore activists or intellectuals or theorists, but rank and file members. But it does sort of uh, make me think about how much they understood Marxism or so the degree of political education that was happening uh, within the JCP at the time. For instance, like there is a few examples where they, you know, they narrate this experience in the very like religious term, right? Like they have this like enlightenment and awakening and it's no longer about class struggle, but it's all about sort of like kind of communitarian realization of shared humanity or even almost kind of like new agey, new age spiritual, you know, like realization. Uh, and then they sort of compare to Marxism, but Marxism is almost like a religion. And yeah, maybe there wasn't, you know, they just, you know, I think one of them, I think Kobayashi Morita was only in party for like a few months before they, he got arrested. Um, yeah. Also, there's another example where the nationalism appeals to them emotionally, right? Like the family, this idyllic image of the countryside or Furusato, you're right. Like, um, but maybe they didn't really like. I wonder if they has to do with the understanding of national question, or maybe that party didn't do enough work of like critiquing imperialism or nationalism, or they couldn't. You know, some scholars argue that Jeremy Houston being one of them, like they, you know, the national they didn't really grapple sufficiently with the national question. What do you say to that? Yeah. Well, I. I think that to a certain extent, the national question, maybe at least at the degree of strategy and organizing, uh, may not have been sufficiently kind of dealt with. But I think what's important to realize uh, with this case is that the the national question is is not unique to Japan. Um, unfortunately, in Jermaine Hostin's work, uh, it does become something uniquely Japanese, which interestingly enough, almost kind of doubles the national question, you know, it both, it's basically trying to explain uh, by reintroducing the problem, you know, to be a Japanese communist was to be anti-Japanese uh, or a negation of the Japanese community 
um, in, in, in her assessment and explanation of why Tenkel might have taken place. Uh, but, you know, that, that's been, of course, the, the criticism of uh, communism or Marxism or socialism from a nationalist perspective uh, in, in many other countries. And so it doesn't really actually explain much. But, but it is true that from the, the top down within the JCP that you do have a struggle to grapple with uh, what is theorized as the national question. Um, and, you know, of course, this is probably exemplified best by um, the JCP leadership who also went through Tenko. And, and here I have in mind, of course, Sano Manabu and Nabiyama Sadachika, uh, particularly Sano Manabu as a university-educated intellectual uh, party theoretician, you know, does try and formulate some kind of conception of socialism in one country. And here he's, you know, appropriating uh, Stalin's idea of socialism in one country as a defense of communism. Uh, but for Sano Manabu, it becomes kind of a type of national socialism uh, with all the kind of, you know, rightist, unintentional rightist tendencies that that come along with it. Um, and of course, we all know where Sano Manabu and Nabiyama Sadachika kind of developed in the 30s and 40s as kind of apologists to Japanese imperialism and um, and these kinds of things. So, I mean, this is, this is, you know, a major problem. And I think the kind of reflection um, that took place about the calm intern or even the, the European response to the rise of fascism here, I'm having, you know, thinking of course of uh, Nico Polanzi's, um uh, kind of consideration about this, you know, what kind of the history and the theorization of, of anti-fascism and, and what kind of policies might have been uh, developed um, in, in Europe in, in the 1930s um, to organize against this is also a question uh, for uh, Japan. And of course, as Arif Derlich has pointed out, a question for China as well in his uh, really splendid book, uh, Revolution in History. Uh, and in the Japanese case, of course, Gavin Walker's uh, book on Duke it is kind of grappling with this question of the national question um, in, in the 1930s. And it's particularly the political defeat that raises this question, you know, not only of a historical question, but but of the question of, of the national question and the nation form and its relation to uh, capitalism, right? Yeah. Um, it's been a while since I read Jermaine Houston's book, so maybe I'm not uh, remembering her work right. But I was also thinking about... Um, um, right? Like the debate on Japanese capitalism. Yeah. And yeah. Um, Gavin Walker points out that, you know, in the Kozaha side of things, they maybe overemphasize the particularity of the, the so-called Japanese capitalism. Of course, there's only capitalism. I don't think there's specifically Japanese about capitalism in Japan. Um, so there was sort of like criticism that can be maybe made of them about sort of there's they couldn't really overcome that nationalist framework and it's kind of like the the, the nuance of that is kind of hard to get around um, but it's safe to say that you know JCP is often seen as the, the only party that didn't collaborate with the fascists that emerged from the war other Socialist parties collaborate with the fascists, but they're, you know, the JCP was sort of clean, so to speak. But this legacy of Tenkosha definitely reveals more complexity around that narrative. 
Oh, sure. Yeah. And, you know, the irony is that, you know, for the JCP to emerge from the Pacific War is kind of unstained um, without collaboration also meant that tens of thousands of its members had to leave the party, uh, you know, in that name. And that, you know, the few who are um, either who survived in jail, who didn't actually die in jail, uh, many of them uh, did perish or were able to uh, flee to, you know, mainland uh, China, you know, they can return unstained, but we're talking about a handful of people, <laughs> you know, we're not talking about a, an actual full, a full party. And unfortunately what we see in the early, I mean, you know, you can date the destruction of the J- Japanese communist party, you know, basically 1934, 35. I mean, you may have text being written, you know, you may have the party organ being written, but it's, it's only really circulating among a very small handful of, of people. And as a party organization, of course, um, uh, the JCP had, had been organizationally crushed by 34, 35. Um, and a lot of that has to do with uh, Sano Manabu and, and Nabiyama Sadachika and others of the, the jailed uh, leadership of the JCP, you know, very publicly uh, announcing uh, their break from the Communist International and the JCP and, and trying to chart a new route that they saw as more adequate to Japan, but which was a form of kind of national socialism. Yeah. Also, I'm wondering what happened to the people who didn't convert? Like, were there any, you know, there's an example of, of course, Kobayashi Takeji who was tortured to death. Yeah. And later on, the the peace preservation law was revised to to make the altering the cocktail punishable by death. Um, were there any executions yeah. that happened and other people who died? Um, no, actually, that that's the interesting point. Um, it, it's somewhat up to debate. Uh, so it, at least in the metropole, so in, in the home islands of Japan, in the archipelago of Japan, no one was officially executed under the law. Um, although we do know, of course, that people um, either died uh, through interrogation or died of disease by being in jail, um, being detained under this law. Um, but what happens in the early 1940s is the peace preservation law is revised once again. It's it's revised twice, actually, uh, in the late 20s and once again in, in 1941. And the reason why they revise it in 1941 is because a lot of the people who were arrested in 1928-29, the nationwide roundups at that time would be coming up to to their parole, basically, um, that their terms uh, that they were sentenced in the late 20s were, were going to be coming due. And so uh, officials were concerned about that. Officials were also concerned about how to manage um, people who were still detained, but at different degrees of conversion. So they wanted to come up with a kind of a more flexible system to be able to kind of manage these people. But one of the things that they introduced in in 41, and this is right on the eve of the Pacific War, um, is a program called preventative detention, which basically extended uh, jail time for those who refused to convert. So, you know, there was one track, if you were on the process of converting and you would be managed. And if you weren't converting, now there was preventative detention to extend your um, you know, servitude uh, further rather than you being released without you know, some 
active conversion, right? And so that there were people uh, in the 1940s that were held under this preventative detention um, policy, and, and including Fukumoto Kazuo, actually, is, is one of the people who, who were in that, but also uh, some, some of the post-war uh, JCP leadership we're in that as well. It's it's not very it's not a lot of people who are placed under the system, but it just kind of shows you uh, how officials were trying to adjust the law based on these kinds of conditions, right? Yeah, there's definitely like force involved, right? Like there's definitely even though this the process was ostensibly like benevolent display of the imperial sovereign's generosity or whatever. And you know, it's more ideological than repressive, but they're still repressive. Um, you know, very more naked violence. You, you could be kept in jail indefinitely until you convert. So it's definitely the voluntary aspect, yeah. there, but also yeah, force involved for sure. Okay, um, I want to move on to the next question about how the law was applied in the colonies. Uh, throughout the book, you discussed the different ways in which. Uh, the peace preservation law was applied in the colonies also, especially Korea. How different were these applications and why do you think they differed? Yeah, so there's just now um, being more work done uh, on this, not, not only on the application of this law in the colonies, but the experiences of a lot of the people who did sensibly commit Tenko, who were uh, anti-colonial, either communists or colonial nationalists who happened to be rounded up under the peace preservation law. One of the things that I note in my book, and here I'm, I'm drawing upon uh, other research by uh, Naoki um, and, and others who, who've really kind of been at the, the forefront of covering these documents and, and making sense of the application of this law in the colonies, uh, that the, let's say, if we want to get the ratio between repression uh, versus rehabilitation, um, and mind you that in the Japanese metropole, rehabilitation took place before indictment or before a sentence was applied. Uh, in the colonies, that did not happen. There was a lot more prosecutions carrying through the court and so, you know, one could, you know, say perhaps that the ratio, of course, of um, uh, repression was, was a lot stronger. Uh, not only were the, the roundups uh, uh, continuous, uh, but there was a lot more prosecutions. And there's different things that one could say, of, of course, about that. And, and I think that also reflects, you know, if we were going to do some kind of comparative police studies of the application of policing within a metropole and, uh, you know, an empire's colonies, you know, one might find, you know, similar ratios for, for different reasons playing out possibly differently, but, you know, the, the same kind of um, increased repression within the colonies uh, for various reasons. What I think is interesting in the case of the peace preservation law is this, this becomes a problem of how the law is conceived. And, and, and it also shows kind of, the problem of the ideology that is kind of at work uh, within the law. Um, and what I mean by that is there were, of course, colonial subjects in uh, metropolitan Japan that had joined 
uh, or had collaborated, of course, with the Japanese Communist Party, seeing this as you know a step towards Korean liberation as well, along socialist, if not communist lines. Um, and they get arrested and uh, find themselves in similar institutions as their, as their Japanese comrades. Um, but their conversion experiences face more challenges. And so what, what is interesting is for both the practitioners of ideological conversion who are ethnically Japanese, this becomes a problem because they are communicating with their comrades uh, of Korean descent, but being faced with their own specific challenges. One of which, and this gets back to one of your earlier questions is, you know, for a lot of the Korean subjects, you know, they say, well, I don't have the Japanese spirit because I'm I'm not Japanese. The Japanese spirit is something external. It's something that I can pay loyalty to. It is also something that I can see Korea's progress through, you know, that, that I can all agree with that, but I don't have it inside me. And so this cannot be a basis for my own conversion. I'm not returning to some inner essence. This is something external to me, right? And, and this becomes a problem, not only, you know, for their comrades who are also going through conversion, but also justice officials who are overseeing this. So when the, you know, thought criminal rehabilitation and supervision system is applied in colonial Korea, it's applied at the same exact time, basically 1936, 37. There's different reports coming from this, and this is causing problems in 1938, 39, uh, as justice officials would meet in Tokyo and they'd be reviewing uh, the status of cases. Um, and they were noticing a disparity where conversions were happening at a lower rate and uh, possibly not as, quote, complete uh, as in the metropole and questioning why that was. And I think it's in those disparities that you start seeing the openings of you know, the ideology that that is both informing this law, but is also transforming within this law. And particularly by the time that we get to the late 1930s, um, Japan is, of course, uh, in an undeclared uh, war uh, on mainland China, uh, is getting on war footing, uh, is talking about total mobilization. And here justice officials are trying to grapple with the fact that, um, uh, the, you know, in one of their prized colonies, um, uh, they're facing troubles about the appeal of imperial benevolence and and why Korean activists who are arrested under the peace preservation law are not um, converting. Uh, This changes a little later, and by some Korean scholars' explanations, which I I agree with, um, I'm I'm going off their explanations, a lot of them explain that there's these booms in conversion in Korea late 1939, 1940, um, because of the dire situation in East Asia, actually. So it's like a geopol- the geopolitical context has, has shifted for Korean activists who no, no longer see the possibility of, um, uh, you know, alliances with the Soviet Union or, uh, you know, other predicaments of the Japanese empire. Now the Japanese empire is on mainland China. Um, Korean activists do not have access into North China uh, anymore, and there's kind of a strategic reevaluation, and thus you have a lot of people who are ostensibly uh, converting at that time. That's what some Korean scholars who've worked on this problem have explained. But for me, I think the earlier point is more interesting about what this means for the practitioners and the officials who are overseeing this conversion policy, uh, and 
how they try and grapple with the fact that um, there's different ratios between metropole and colony and what that what does that mean as far as imperial ideology and its appeal across the empire. Yeah, this part made me really think of, I mean, this might be a little too simplistic, but the fact that it was more difficult to uh, do conversion there, the fact that it was more repressive there than ideological, relatively speaking, was that maybe they are more militant or more committed or, you know, there was fiercer resistance to Japanese imperialism than in the the mainland Japan. What do you think about that? You know, that that may be the case. And, and to, to put this into the terms that justice officials explained, now, which is not to say, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm following what the justice officials say, but only pointing to these citations as far as what it reveals about the kind of problem this presented to justice officials. What they said in the in the Korean case was if a and this is early on actually this is in the late 1920s and the early 1930s as as peace preservation law cases are are going through the courts in colonial Korea um, there are interpretations that are coming from judges as well as justice officials that are explaining unlike communists in the metropole who are ideologically committed to this political ideology in Korea it's a national question at the same time. And so, you know, they talk about this kind of a kind of communism, you know, it's it's a communism that is actually a step towards national liberation, you know, freed from the Japanese empire, right? Um, and so uh, in the terms of how the justice officials are trying to oversee this, I think we can maybe start grappling, you know, with that because there's, you know, the anti-colonial struggle in Korea is slightly different from um, at least maybe as it's perceived or strategically as a Japanese communist in Tokyo, you know, joining the party, um, th- there, there may be a different conception of, of, of what that means. I, I'm not exactly sure if there was different degrees of, let's say, commitment or ardor to the movement, but, um, you know, it was the anti-colonial na- nationalist question that for the justice officials, this is what they turned to um, in order to explain some of the you know, recidivism that happened, you know, some people would convert, but then they'd get rearrested and they're trying to explain why that was happening. And and time and time again, they said, well, you know, this isn't just a question of communist internationalism, but this is a nationalism of an anti-colonial struggle, right? Yeah. Another interesting aspect of, of this is that um, you talk about in the book that, you know, there's this idea that which is probably true to a certain extent that the Japanese empire was multicultural, right? Like multi-ethnic. They had this idea of like East Asia, uh, prosperity sphere, or like, you know, five ethnicities coexisting or whatever. Right. But at the same time, it shows that the idea of cocktail was very much essentialist and racist. Uh, there's a racist core to this idea that the Koreans could never be, Japanese, right? It was underlying uh, racism and colonial chauvinism there. Yeah, yeah. They the the terms that are kind of wh- whether the officials are aware that the conceptual contradiction is happening between these terms is is maybe another uh, you know besides the point, but that they, but that they're using these terms in these um, 
in these writings, I think is indicative, you know, Koreans can be Kokumin, so people of the nation, right? Uh, people of the imperial kind of empire, uh, but they lack Minzoku, right? So then all of a sudden kind of a, I know the translations of these terms are contested, but for our sake, you know, saying something to the effect of a kind of ethnic nationalism uh, for Minzoku versus Kokumin as kind of a national you know, civic nationalism, possibly, uh, even though we're talking about an imperial nationalism here, uh, both empire, but also people, um, you know, subjects of the emperor, you see this kind of, these two terms appearing in, in the official records, right? Um, and in, in the book, I do I do make the claim that, you know, one undercuts the other. So, you know, there are claims of kokumin, they're 100% kokumin, they're, they're working for the Japanese empire, and yet, um, we should suspect them because they lack the ethnic characteristics that would allow for the harnessing of the Japanese spirit to them to affect a full 100% complete tenko that will be resilient upon their release. Um, uh, so I think that also uh, points to yet another kind of internal contradiction that the law um, and its uh, criminal reform policy, you know, was predicated upon, but also couldn't overcome. Okay, um, so I'm going to move on to the next question. There has been a debate about the nature of fascism in Japan. You know, whether if it's fascism at all, right? Like some scholars of fascism maintain that Japan, uh, it was something else. It was a militarism or it was, um, they refused to call it fascism. And uh, I had an episode with uh, Robert Stoltz talking about Tosaka Jun and a debate on Japanese fascism. What can this history of peace preservation law uh, tell us about the rise of fascism in Japan and the nature of the political system of imperial sovereignty created as a result of the Meiji uh, Restoration um, in the relationship between liberalism and fascism? Because the people who created this law was not necessarily like raging fascist, right? It was more or less uh, liberal politicians. So I wonder, I talked with Robert about, yeah, and Tosaka's criticism of liberalism being sort of enabling fascism. Um, yeah, what does this history of peace preservation law tell us about that? Sure, I think, um, I think I'll leave the complexities of Tosaka Jun's theory of Japanese fascism to Robert and the others who know that much better than I. And on a much more cruder and simplistic note, I think it's just one of the first things that we can do is recognize that, uh, you know, fascism in Japan or elsewhere is not merely a mode of uh, state repression, uh, right? I mean, of course, we identify it with, um, uh, you know, violence, you know, a, a kind of mobilization, but a mobilization that is is violent and, and suppressing other movements and, and these kinds of things, but also an appeal and, and a promise to fix the lived contradictions um, that make uh, people uh, find, uh, for whatever misplaced reason, you know, start identifying with it. And I, I think, you know, perhaps the peace preservation law um, may help us understand again that you know it's not just and this is how it was the law was kind of characterized by a lot of post-war Japanese scholars in the 1950s and 60s was it, it just showed you the 
barbarity of the pre-war state and and how it suppressed all dissent and it you know it moved from the Japanese communists to new religious groups to intellectuals and these kinds of things and that's true I mean that the, that that history is most definitely there but also in the conversion policy that there's this promise and and it's not a promise of returning to a society the way it was you know that the part of kind of returning to one's essential Japaneseness or the promises of imperial ideology was actually recreating um, a new society in a new world. Um, and you find that in a lot of the texts, particularly the more really kind of ardent <laughs> believers in this ideology in the late 30s and early 40s, is that there's this promise that Western civilization is done, uh, as you can see in the world wars. Um, uh, capitalism has you know, reached a, a critical impasse in the early 30s, and we have to rethink society anew um, and different forms of sociality. And, and to a certain extent, uh, fascism was one of the promises to do that, you know, enlisting basically myth, uh, enlisting of manifesting the Kokotai for the first time um, to, to make a new world, et cetera. Um, maybe you see these kinds of things appear in nationalist ideologues in the mid 1930s late 1930s the ones that Tosaka June were, was critiquing or or whatnot but as far as the peace preservation law is concerned I think it's just interesting that there's this coupling of of both the the repressive apparatus of detaining uh, interrogating prosecuting if no conversions are happening but also that over time policy starts taking on um, imperial ideology, uh, particularly in the 1930s, once you have you know various political crises, economic crises, and then Japan is at war after July 1937, that these things kind of filter into how conversion is being measured and practiced. Um, and a lot of the people are writing not about like, it's just great to return to society and be normal. It's about we're recreating a new world. We're working for uh, a new world you know, by the time of the co-prosperity sphere, a new East Asia freed from Western imperialism, et cetera, et cetera. And we can fault these people for buying into what was clearly just excuses for Japanese expansion. Um, and also, we can also agree with them for their criticisms of Western imperialism. Uh, but I think, you know, it's important to note that, you know, there, there was an ideological appeal uh, to that as well. And that's one of the things I think both, you know, in early kind of conventional studies of fascism, you only get the sense of, you know, repression and control and a totalitarian state. You don't actually get to, you know, the emphasis on a cultural social imaginary that um, many people identified with and, and supported. Possibly that imaginary could be seen in some of the writings of the conversion, uh, the people who are practicing conversion and what kind of society they thought they were building in the mid to late 30s. Yeah, I think it, it's also interesting that earlier, uh, in 1928, peace preservation law was passed almost at the same time as the first, you know, the male suffrage. Um, was it the first general election or the, when the, the first suffrage law was passed? And I think it's, yeah, yeah it, it's, it's it was, contested. It but passed I guess, in, yeah, 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 1925. Yeah, so it's like that, that timing is really interesting. I know it's contested, you know, some scholars argue that there is no correlation there, but it seems, you know, like almost like Kara in stake approach taken by the state 
as a whole, right? Like it's the, these liberals are scared of socialists and communists. So, um, but then they want to have like sort of semblance of democracy as well. So, yeah, I think it's the timing is interesting. Sure, sure. And I think, um, yeah, I think the expansion of universal male suffrage then opened up the question of defining you know, the, the contours of the national polity that was able to, you know, cast some, like appropriate forms of political activism, of, of course, right? Um, and even a recent scholar of the peace preservation law, a Japanese scholar subtitled his book, Why Was an Evil Law Passed by the Political Parties? It wasn't a military dictatorship that passed this law, but it was, it was political parties, uh, each with their own kind of interests and electoral politics and whatnot. And they they legislatively debated this, this law. And this kind of gets back to our discussion inspired by the first question was, you know, that they, for whatever reason, were focusing on various aspects of the law rather than um, this term kokotai and were willing to accept that kokotai signified the location of sovereignty in the unbroken line of emperor's ages eternal, as outlined in Article One of the Constitution, which, you know, was an alibi for this is a juridical definition. You know, this is based on a constitutional interpretation, and that's merely what we're bringing into this law. And all we really want to do is just protect against anybody who would want to alter the constitutional basis of our empire. And so for, I think, a lot of uh, center or, you know, center-right party politicians, you know, that was a convincing argument in light of the Bolshevik revolution of uh, seven years before the, the you know, March 1st uprising in colonial Korea, the May 4th movement in China, and all the other things that were transpiring in East Asia that they were willing to accept this definition as a way to define you know, the boundary of acceptable kind of political agitation. And of course, that then took on a life of its own um, once it, it was being applied. Can you talk about how the Japanese state promoted this conversion effort to the broader public and incorporated it into the process of mass mobilization during the war? Uh, yeah. Can you talk about how this was done and any examples that you know? Sure. Yeah. The um, one of the arguments that I make in the book is that these conversions um, and the success of the conversion policy provides a template for how some uh, bureaucrats um, were thinking about war mobilization, particularly 1937 onwards. Um, and this this is really borne out in the the documents themselves that the uh, justice officials, you know, they're making the case for this policy and, and they're, they're, they're celebrating their own successes to other bureaucrats and to other officials. So, you know, on the one hand, they, they're, you know, in bureaucratic competition, they're, they're saying like, look at what a great success that we've had, at least within the Metropole um, with the conversion policy. And so time and time again, you see people, uh, officials, Hirata Isao and, and others um, stand before officials and say, you know, this is this is a great policy. But when they when they do, they say this needs to be expanded. And in fact, um, it's not just 
the ex-communists, it, it shouldn't stop at the ex-communists, but in fact, all of us need to kind of consider this as, as a general kind of principle that we should consider, like purify our thoughts, um, more closely return to our national kind of understanding of our national identity, um, our patriotism, our loyalty to the emperor, et cetera. And so, you know, they kind of bookmark these lectures that they're giving to other officials with urging their audience that they, they need to affect a ideological conversion as well. And so, you know, on, on the one hand, it's rhetorical. It's, you know, it's, it's part of a rhetoric of not only celebrating their own policies, but then, you know, driving the point home saying like, this is a model for, for all of us to follow and, and, and our society. But then on the other hand too, you have uh, new state agencies that are created right before or during um, the early years of uh, Japan's invasion of China. So the second Sino-Japanese war um, that also put out this information basically to the public. And so uh, one of the sections in the book, I talk about how this uh, cabinet information division. And so it's, you know, kind of think of it as kind of a propaganda division within the within the government, but it was much more than just propaganda. And one of the elements that they put out to the public uh, early on uh, in 1938 is the example of ideological conversion. And so they, they actually take uh, an exhibition, they call it a thought war exhibition. And, uh, you know, they bring it to department stores uh, throughout the Japanese empire. And it, and it does actually go to uh, Keijo, Korea, uh, present day Seoul, uh, and, and other department stores around uh, metropolitan Japan, in which th they're basically trying to tell the public like what the significance of the battle in China is about. And, you know, they frame it as a thought war, that it's this is basically a, a war between Western Marxism and liberalism, whether, you know, British and American liberalism and, and their imperialisms, as well as the Soviet Union's communism versus um, the Japanese spirit and, and Japan's kind of responsibility to defend Asia against Western imperialism, as well as communism. And, you know, they frame basically that the invasion of China was to uh, defend the East from communism. And they portray, you know, Chiang Kai-shek, who, you know, at this point um, uh, is now within a united front with the Communist Party as a just a puppet of communism, uh, even though, of course, you know, he's got a long history, uh, his blue shirts and the CC clique of killing communists, trying to re-educate them, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, now being portrayed, at least in, in these thought war exhibitions that, you know, the, the battle in China is really a battle against communism, et cetera. And what's, what's interesting is also in these exhibitions is one of the kind of items on display that was supposed to draw people's curiosity and bring them to the exhibition was the actual declaration, the Tenko Declaration or Conversion Declaration of Sano Manabu and Nabiyama Sadachika, who, as we, we discussed earlier, um, you know, were the JCP leaders that in their recantation kind of instigated this, this wave, this Tenko wave in 1933, 1934. 
Um, and so their their letter, their handwritten letter, actually, you know, is on display in this in this exhibition. And so, um, you know, I point to these kinds of examples. So not only how justice officials are celebrating their own successes, and then and then saying this is a model for all of us to follow, um, but as well as these public exhibitions that the state is sponsoring in department stores, in which. Ideological conversion is one of the items to be, you know, displayed and and for you know an audience to kind of consider and see as kind of a didactic message to them to urge them that, you know, even though you're not a communist and you're not in a criminal reform you know program, of course, but we all need to kind of self reflect and and carry out a conversion. Um, the, the communists are presented almost as the vanguard of this of this process that now the, the entire nation must undergo. Yeah. It's kind of scary to think of, you know, this propaganda be incorporated into sort of everyday space, uh, as part of consumer culture. Right. Yeah. And yeah, it is sort of, it, it does show the ideological dimension of sort of massification of fascism that was happening in Japan at the time. Yeah, exactly. I in a in a separate article, uh, journal article, I, I focus on this exhibition and particularly the one that they held in uh, Takashima Ya department store in Nihonbashi in downtown Tokyo. And there, the argument is that you know, in an earlier explanation of uh, Japanese fascism or Japanese rise of militarism was that there was a um, not just a colonization, but a complete suppression of the cultural experimentation that had taken place during Taisho democracy and during the 1920s, um, et cetera. And, and, you know, in many ways, that is very true. You know, proletarian theater groups and artists and whatnot were rounded up for being communist sympathizers and uh, various art groups and whatnot were, you know, disbanded and suppressed. And so that, that, that is very true. But what I argue in this article is that actually the state saw this long history of department stores holding exhibitions, art exhibitions, and, you know, saw this as a way to get the message out to a middle-class urban shopper about this thing that they're calling thought war, uh, which apparently explains, um, you know, Japan's actions in China and Japan's place within East Asia and what even the middle-class department store shopper needs to do, which is to reflect on their national identity, uh, recognize that they're imperial subjects and, you know, be loyal to the state. But there, you know, I also argue in, in the article that as such, as an exhibition, you know, on the one hand, of course, the state brings the exhibition to the department store because they're going to the urban middle class to, to bring this message. But as an exhibition that has to compete with all the other consumer items and gadgets and neon signs and whatnot that capture the attention of consuming middle class, um, you know, the message gets a little, you know, is, is presented in an interesting way, meaning that, you know, they have to somehow present the Japanese spirit in a way that, you know, not only conveys what the kind of the message that they want to to get to the audience, but also to 
for them to be interested and to, you know, have some kind of dazzling display cases or dioramas or, you know, neon lights or these kinds of things, um, which is, you know, pretty interesting to think about as far as what it means to try and represent the Japanese spirit or the benevolence of, you know, the unbroken line of emperors, ages eternal, et cetera, et cetera, in display cases, you know, in these kind of very modern forms of how um, modern consumption is, you know, mediated and, and, um, and advertised. Um, so that, that's what I explore uh, in the article, but, you know, as far as, you know, conversion, it, it, it is, it is interesting. You know, there's a couple of the reviews of the book that have come out. There's been some people who have taken me to task for saying like that, you know, I've made this argument too broadly that basically the, the success of the ideological conversion policy maybe wasn't as successful. And, you know, that now, you know, what I'm arguing is that the entire nation went under this ideological conversion process. And that's, of course, not what I'm arguing. But what I am arguing is that the officials presented it as such. You know, that there was a logic to this that seeped out of the criminal reform policies, went far beyond uh, the communists that had been arrested. And, uh, and by 1938, we see it on display in an urban department store, um, you know, in which urban middle class shoppers are now being, you know, urged to re-identify as loyal imperial subjects. Now, whether that was successful or not, that that's not exactly what, what I'm um, analyzing in the book, but what I am analyzing is the ideology, you know, behind this and the dynamics of that ideology and how it developed over time from what had been a very specific criminal rehabilitation policy. Yes, um, I was going to say it's, uh, you know, it's quite surreal. And I said earlier that, you know, it's scary. But at the same time, I think something similar was also done during the Cold War in the States, like our anti-communist propaganda. Um, sure. We see. So, you know, it's uh, it's important to highlight that this was not unique to Japan either. Oh, no, no, no. Yeah, no, of course not. And I mean, that's, that's the thing. It's, it's one thing. I mean, of course, anti-communism is a tenant of uh, 20th century, you know, rightist thinking and 21st century rightist thinking. Um, in the 20th century, and particularly in the Cold War, there, you know, there, whether it's exaggerated or not, there is an actually existing presence in, in communist regimes, really existing socialism, et cetera, et cetera. That's a geopolitical question and, and whatnot. But, um, you know, it's interesting to even think about now in the 21st century, and I'm thinking here just of uh, U.S. politics where, you know, a really a almost rabid kind of rightist movement has emerged over the last couple of years. You know, people call it alt-right or, you know, the populist kind of right. But it's very interesting to see how anti-communism has become this trope kind of fueling this anger, you know, whether it's at school boards, their local school boards that they're, you know, blaming to be communists who are teaching certain things or that like an infrastructure bill, which is, you know, an old kind of welfare state 
you know, policy uh, that that would have been accepted, you know, just 50 years ago, even at the height of like, you know, anti-communism in the U.S. 50 years ago or, or longer um, is is now presented as like this is a communist takeover of the United States and, and whatnot. So I just I find it interesting how these things take root and take on a life of their own, these ideas. Right. And and this rhetoric and, and what that rhetoric uh, does, it's it's quite fascinating, actually. Yeah, we're also seeing this uh, really strange trend on social media, uh, probably in the real world as well. But um, yeah, like it's some self-described leftists calling themselves patriotic socialist or like red patriotism. So basically, mostly in the U.S., there's some uh, rightists who are trying to take over the CPUSA and you know, sort of rebranding American flag as a, um, it's a way to like reach out to working class people. Like you don't want to alienate uh, working class by, you know, criticizing settler colonialism and to be uh, socialist or to be communist is to be American kind of thing. And um, obviously, it's criticized by the actual leftists and anti-fascists, but you know, it's kind of like subtle ideological conversion happening um some on the left drifting towards rightism or in even fascism without being you know subjected to an institutionalized process so yeah it kind of reminds me of that uh, what i was happening during the interwar period in japan yeah yeah and you know even even in the late 20s and the early 30s um in the japanese communist case um is there there was a continuing problem of uh, mass organizing, of course. And so, uh, you know, as many scholars have, have pointed out, social historians and, um, historians of the, of the Japanese communist party, uh, uh, both Japanese scholars and and Anglophone, um, scholars have, have pointed out that a lot of these conversions, you know, again, it's not necessarily even bad faith uh, on the part of, um, some of these people who are converting, you know, they truly believe that they have been alienated from the very class that they are trying to organize and be the, you know, the kind of political vanguard, the revolutionary vanguard in, in the interest of. And so, you know, one way to try and uh, return to the fold and, and possibly even better organize is to you know, quote unquote, recognize the patriotism of the working class. And, and, and mind you, in, in the Japanese case, this is after the uh, invasion of uh, Manchuria in 1931. And so there was this kind of like nationalist kind of tide, patriotic tide that really swelled uh, at that time. And so in that wake, you know, here, um, you know, this is used as kind of a uh, an excuse by many um, who have been sitting in jail since being arrested in 28, 29, you know, really thinking like, wow, that, that was just a failure as far as what this party was trying to do and how they were trying to organize. And, and, you know, now we recognize that the, the masses are actually quite patriotic and that they, you know, really are um, loyal to the emperor. And so we really need to think, you know, socialism along nationalist lines. And that's exactly what Sano Manabu and Nabiyama Sadachika you know, did after their conversion was to try and rethink, you know, socialism, uh, you know, they, they appropriated 
the Soviet Union slogan of socialism in one country, meaning, you know, the defense of the Soviet Union, because it's the bastion of world communism, but, you know, being attacked on all sides, they turn it into a kind of national socialism uh, in which to try and reconnect with um, uh, the working class. And of course, you know, utter failure. I mean, not only are they continuing to sit in jail and write about this, but they're trying to put out these theories and these, um, you know, these books, both critiquing the Japanese Communist Party's earlier uh, analysis of the Japanese situation and the conditions, the revolutionary possibility within Japan, as well as how to organize um, the working class. But so, yeah, you, you, you see, you know, the same thing. And I'm sure, I mean, I don't know, I, I'm not, I'm not privy to uh, what's been transpiring within the U S and about, you know, red, red patriots or, or, or what have you, um, you know, but I imagine for some of these people, you know, uh, you know, they really do think that they're trying to reach out to a working class that is, you know, essentially or inherently, you know, nationalistic. And so, you know, the best way to, um, you know, organize uh, among them is, is to, is to reflect that, you know, which, you know, on the one hand, it seems like an organizational matter uh, and a strategy matter, but of course it has, really serious ideological implications about where your politics move uh, in that adjustment or revision, I should say. Yeah, again, they're also, you know, sort of making their own choices, supposedly, right? Like coming to their own, you know, through reflection and uh, supposedly like some analysis of society as they see it. And, but, you know, if you study history, there has been many instances of, fascist ideology creeping into the leftist space and yeah so this is why you know studying history is so important yeah 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 i think i think that uh, you know something that we talked about earlier um this is also how power operates you know we we often try and think about power as you know the jailer you know, putting somebody in the dungeon, you know, and, and locking them away and, the, you know, powers acting upon this, you know, and, and, and oppressing this, you know, this person, of course, Foucault and uh, many other theorists have kind of rethought the repression thesis of, of how power operates. Um, but I think one of the things that's most interesting with the ideological conversion case is all of the people who went through this, um, and wrote about it in their biographical telling of their conversion process, you know, all talk about it as it's their own realization, you know? So it's just jail was a time, it was a productive time for them to reflect on the errors of their ways, you know? Um, and on the one hand, we can think, okay, this is, this is bad faith actually, or, or, um, you know, whatnot, but, but but it is interesting to see how that's being narrated and it's part of that narrative form that is the operations of power itself of, you know, somebody biographically writing their own conversion uh, narrative and oftentimes saying it was like an epiphany. You know, they, they came to their own realization. It wasn't a Buddhist chaplain. It wasn't um, a justice official. It wasn't somebody who was looking over them uh, during, you know, maybe probation or, or anything like that. It was it was their own realization. And that's how power operates, right? You know, that's that's the insidious ways of how the, how these things transpire. So I think it's important to you can look at the historical record as you were saying and and see this in 
past experiences and, you know, maybe use that to reflect on how certain operations of power are working now to undercut uh, working class politics or, or, you know, other kind of like leftist politics. By the way, have you seen Martin Scorsese's Silence? Uh, I have. I have. When I watched it, that kind of, that's what came to my mind. Oh, this is like Tenko. Um, you know, the whole Christian persecution of Christians and, you know, this um, this priest turning, you know, sort of committing Tenko and becoming a Buddhist and he's sort of Japanized, so to speak. Um, the film is based on Endo Shusaku's novel. Yeah. Do you think Endo was sort of referring to Tenko here? Oh, yeah. Yeah, m- m- most definitely. I, I think that was on the mind of intellectuals and writers at the time that he wrote that book. And, you know, particularly thinking about um, the earlier kind of Shutai Seironso uh, in the post-war period, the, the subjectivity debates and, and these kinds of things that as um, historical allegory, um, you know, thinking about what that means. I mean, the, the Scorsese uh film is is interesting since it focuses so much on on the you know the 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 foreign aspect of uh the priests who are who have arrived to japan to you know proselytize um and you know in the end even though he's carrying out the um surveillance of the materials that are being offloaded by foreign traders you know when he's buried what what does he have in his hand he's got a little cross i.e he he always you know he kept that belief inside you know even though he was carrying out the the you know the power the 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 operations of you know the quote-unquote the state you know the bakufu you know and their anti-christian uh you know fumier style policies but you, you constantly did have in the post-war period people calling on the the hidden Christians uh, of Kyushu as as this historical you know analogy really to to the Tenko experience and you know Tsurumi Shinsuke and others you know make make allusions to the prosecution of um, uh, Christians at that time and so it's I think that's an interesting. Uh, it's an interesting novel, and and also I think it's interesting that Scorsese uh, decided to make, you know, what is this the third film adaptation of that novel? Um, and it'd be interesting to know uh, why, what his intentions were to do to do so now. Padre, it is perfectly simple. Korob. Have you heard that word? Korob. It means. Fall down, surrender, give up the faith, apostatize, as you say. They tortured fathers Poro and Kassoro over the pit. Have you heard of them? There was one called Pedro, too, and Ferreira, of course. Ferreira? Did you know him? I've, I've heard of him. No doubt. He's well known all over Japan now. The priest with the Japanese name and the Japanese wife. I don't believe you. You can ask anyone. People in Nagasaki point him out and marvel. <laughs> he is held in great esteem now, which I believe is why he came here in the first place. Yeah. <sighs> Well, 
He is Ferreira only to you. He is Sawano Chuan now. A man who has found peace. Let him guide you along his path, the path of mercy. That means only that you abandon self. No one should interfere with another man's spirit. To help others is the way of the Buddha, and your way too. The two religions are the same in this. It is not necessary to win anyone over to one side or another when there is so much to share. Go on. I've been told to get you to abandon the faith. I have labored in this country for 15 years. I know it better than you. Our religion does not take root in this country. Because the roots have been torn up. No, because this country is a swamp. Nothing grows here. Plant a sapling here and the roots rot. There was a time when Christianity grew and flourished. When? When? In your time, Father. In your time, before you became like... Like who? Like them? Rodriguez, please listen. The Japanese only believe in their distortion of our gospel. So they did not believe at all. They never believed. How can you say that? From, from the time of St. Francis Xavier, through your own time, there were hundreds of thousands of converts here. Converts? Converts, yes. Francis Xavier came here to teach the Japanese about the Son of God, but first he had to ask how to refer to God. Dainichi, he was told. Shall I show you their Dainichi? Behold, there is the Son of God, God's only begotten Son. In the scriptures, Jesus rose on the third day. In Japan, <laughs> the Son of God rises daily. The Japanese cannot think of an existence beyond the realm of nature. For them, nothing transcends the human. No. They can't conceive of our idea of the Christian God. You're wrong. You're wrong. They worship God. God, our Lord. They praise the name of Deus. That's just another word for a God they never knew. I saw men die. I did too. For Deus, on fire with their faith. Your martyrs may have been on fire, Father, but it was not with the Christian faith. I saw them die. I saw them die. They did not die for nothing. They did not. They're dying for you, Rodriguez. How many did you save? When you trampled on the face of our Lord, how many beside yourself? I don't know. Certainly not as many as you may help. You're trying to justify your own weakness. God, have mercy on you. Which God? Which one? We say, Sankawarat. I'm sorry, you haven't learned the language thoroughly, have you? There's a saying here. Mountains and rivers can be moved, but man's nature cannot be moved. It's very wise, like so much here. We find our original nature in Japan, Rodriguez. Perhaps it's what's meant by finding God. Okay, uh, speaking of the post-war period, supposedly fascism was defeated and the peace preservation law and the police apparatus of pre-war era was dismantled. But you talk about in your book that 
the legacy of peace preservation law continue to haunt Japanese society as it were, you know, the ghost in the machine metaphor. Can you talk about how the legacy of peace preservation law and thought policing in the interwar period influenced the development of police power in post-war and present-day Japan? Sure. It, it, it influenced it in many ways. Probably the most well-known uh, for, for listeners and, and people who study modern Japan would be the, the inspiration behind the subjectivity debates, um, the Shutai Seiron Sol, about you know, what the role is for writers and intellectuals, uh, as well as activists in the post-war period, and what form of subjectivity is going to be adequate for, um, you know, carrying out the kind of reforms uh, and restructures society uh, in order to build a better society in the, in the 50s. And what they do is they look back to, of course, the 1930s and, and see uh, an entire generation uh, recanting when when pressed or maybe not even when when pressed by by the authorities and recanting and thinking you know why is that why was that and what example does it hold for us now so that that that's one legacy and of course many people who survived the war you know had to contend uh with this fact as as far as um you know either accounting for their recantations before the war and you know carrying this um this you know possible embarrassment um you know with it uh with them into the post-war and of course you have reverse tenko so gyaku tenko you know so you have some people returning to the fold and even joining the japanese communist party after renouncing it in the early 1930s uh in the post-war period so you know of course there's political debts being being collected at this time let's say um but you know so there's an there's an intellectual in political kind of influence about the people who experience it and thinking about it as kind of a historical example to think politics in their own present moment. As far as the law is concerned, it's it's interesting. The legacy of the peace preservation laws is always kind of there as a reference um, to kind of try and keep check on uh, what could possibly be repressive laws or uh, applications of police power in the post-war period is saying, oh, this is this might be a return to the peace preservation law. Of course, the, the, the most famous case would be um, the, the critics of uh, the 1952 Subversive Activities Prevention Law, which was passed after the bloody May Day uh, protests um, that occurred in 1952, and you know, which also establishes the public security agency. Um, and many of the critics at the time, you know, said, oh, this is harking back to the peace preservation law. This is going to have a chilling effect on the uh, political rights that were supposedly uh, granted during the occupation and under the, the newly reformed, democratized, heavy on the quotation marks, um, Japanese state. Um, and so th there was there were those uh, concerns. Um, more recently, uh, in 2017, in a revised organized crime law um, that the uh, Abe administration uh, put forth, there was an anti-conspiracy clause in there that a lot of people uh, found uh, resonance with the a revision of the peace preservation law. So this is the Kyo Bolzai um, anti-conspiracy law. And basically, it was it was how it defined conspiracy. Um, uh, 
the intention was to try and locate and prevent a terrorist activity being carried out by, you know, people who are conspiring to do so. But it, it was a little undefined as far as what, well, what constitutes a conspiracy? Are we talking about people who are, you know, what actually constitutes the line between, you know, people imagining a certain thing, talking about something and it actually forming a conspiracy. Um, and the Japan Federation of Bar Association, you know, came out critical of this law. Uh, there was concerns even raised by the United Nations um, about this clause, um, et cetera. And in a lot of those criticisms, you have people referring back to the peace preservation law and particularly um, its uh, later revision in uh, uh, 1928, 1929, where it made anybody who might be quote unquote, furthering the aims of any of these organizations that were possibly threatening to alter the Kokutai or deny the private property system. But the, the key phrase there in this revision was furthering the aims, which is kind of an undefined, you know, what, what, what does that actually mean? Does that mean, you know, somebody who gave money to somebody to, to fund the party that, so is that, you know, furthering names or is it somebody who, you know, did an analysis of Soviet communism as an academic study. Is that quote unquote furthering the aims? It was unclear. So a lot of people uh, see the anti-conspiracy law of 2017 um, as, you know, possibly echoing this, this kind of fuzzy legal definition of um, uh, the peace preservation laws revision in 2829. Um, the other thing that's actually quite interesting is uh, even more recently, well, not more recently, but, you know, in the 1990s, after the Aum Shinrikyo sarin attacks, it was debated if uh, the subversive activities prevention law should be applied to them. And again, in these debates, it was about at what point can we talk about a subversive activity prevention law, which was supposed to be, you know, targeting political groups and terrorist activities, what does it mean to apply to a religious group? And so there, it, it, in the end, it wasn't actually applied to Elm Shinrikyo, but um, there, there were debates about that. And the, and the critics of that proposal uh, referred back to the peace preservation law. So it's interesting. The peace preservation law is kind of always there and its historical legacy is, you know, being, being discussed in, in, in these ways, in these legal debates and political debates over over the application of of laws against groups and 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 definitions of crimes, um, the the last legacy, and the one that I think is uh, most important, but it's it's the least um, studied, is that the criminal rehabilitation policies that were first deployed against political criminals. And then were expanded. So, you know, in 1936, there's the Thought Criminals Protection and Supervision System, um, which placed detained political criminals who seemed to have the potential for re- renouncing their crimes and reflecting on their on on you know their political activities and, and possibly tenkling, um, creating a policy in which they could be monitored uh, before they get indicted or sentenced. Um, and it creates a whole system in which these people are supervised and urged to, you know, commit uh, tenkel. And this is then expanded in 1939 um, as 
for all adult offenders of, of a way of, you know, possibly rehabilitating um, ex-offenders who are showing some sign of remorse. And then moving into the post-war, what you constantly see, particularly with foreign observers of Japan's post-war penal system, is a celebration of its kind of rehabilitative ideal behind it. So instead of retribution, so instead of long prison sentences and, and these kinds of things, a lot of the observers and a lot of how the justice ministry actually presents its system in the post-war period is that there's a strong emphasis on rehabilitation. And, you know, some people call this the benevolent, Japan's benevolent, you know, penal system and and, and these kinds of things. Um, and it is true. It's a, it's a quite extensive rehabilitation uh, program that you know, applies to both youth delinquents uh, as well as petty criminals. And this was established in the late 40s and early 50s, oftentimes building on the history of the, the pre-war rehabilitation system. Um, but this is almost always conveniently forgotten in the literature. And so in a recent chapter that I wrote, which is kind of an extension of the book, I, I reflect on this and I try and think, okay, well, what's going on in these histories of Japan's post-war criminal rehabilitation system that they conveniently forget that a lot of the personnel, uh, a lot of the language, so a lot of the discourse around this, um, as well as a lot of the policies uh, were drawn upon from the interwar period uh, and reestablished in, in the post-war period. Now, it's not specifically targeting political criminals, and it doesn't have these kinds of ideological elements um, as, as explicit as it does in the in the pre-war period, because of course they were targeting political criminals. But so you know, I, I look at that kind of legacy and and try and use that as a way to kind of disrupt this uh, celebration. Um, really celebratory kind of, you know, scholarship focusing on this, which, you know, which is, you know, of course, if, if I had to choose rehabilitation over, you know, retribution, long prison sentences, of course, you know, th this, this sounds like an ideal to at least work from, but it conveniently forgot this earlier legacy. The last thing that I'll say about this uh, continuing legacy too, is that the post-war criminal rehabilitation system was closely attached to the imperial household. Uh, and so here you can see another trans-war um, continuity. You know, if in the pre-war period, uh, somebody's ideological conversion is measured by the degree to which they identify as an imperial subject, of course, that's not the basis of criminal rehabilitation in, in the post-war, but you do have the aura of benevolence, of imperial benevolence for rehabilitated ex-offenders and the people who are working in these systems by constantly the uh, members of the imperial household visiting uh, conferences um, and giving rescripts and also uh, donating um, from the Imperial House Agency uh, is donating funds to these rehabilitation efforts. And so uh, one of the things that I argue in this new chapter is that this is one way to kind of reconstitute the, the emperor system in, in, a new, in a new guise, let's say, 
um, you know, where it's, you know, not about military expansion, it's not about imperial loyalty, it's not the imperial rescript on education, it's not, you know, uh, a divine sovereign, et cetera, et cetera, some of the hallmarks of the pre-war system, but in the post-war, you know, through basically benevolence and, you know, the, the, the humanity of the, of the imperial household and their empathy uh, for uh, the, the people of Japan, including ex-offenders who have gotten in trouble with the law, but have been given the chance to uh, reform themselves. And so, you know, this, this also, I think, um, is one of the ways in which the conception of what the imperial household is has been modified in, in the post-war period and, and now given the hue of, you know, a humane benevolence, you know, still a symbol of the nation uh, that they represent, of course, that the emperor represents, no longer sovereign, of course. But, you know, even the probably most famous historian of the peace preservation law, uh, Okudaira Yasuhiro, wrote on the the death of uh, emperor, the Showa emperor uh, in 1989, you know, he put forth this idea of um, uchi naru tenose, so the, the emperor system within. Uh, and he, you know, reflects on the post-war period as, you know, somehow this emperor system that was kind of this external pre-war thing, this power acting upon people had been internalized by the population during, you know, the quote-unquote liberal democratic reforms and the mass media events of, uh, you know, of the emperor presiding over the 1964 Olympics or, you know, standing, you know, the the crown prince standing on the balcony of the, uh, you know, Danchi or, you know, these kinds of things but has somehow been internalized. And so I build off that idea and argue that, you know, it's the, the, the rebuilding, the reestablishment and the expansion of this criminal rehabilitation process being reattached to the imperial household is, is one of the ways in which we can, we can say that the emperor system, the internalized or the within, uh, you know, is continued and reproduced uh, through the examples of the benevolence towards the ex offenders, et cetera. For more on Japan's new emperor, let's cross over to Katalina von Churchenthaler from Germany's ARD studio in Tokyo. So, Katalina, deep symbolism here. Naruhito's ascension to the throne marks the beginning of a new era known as Reiwa, or Beautiful Harmony. What does that mean to the people of Japan? Well, actually, it wasn't the decision of the people of Japan, nor from the imperial family to pick that name. It's a really political decision to assign that name and with that taken by several experts. And it assigns a very clear role to the new emperor to... Um, to secure peace, to bring love to the people. Then, of course, it's up to Naruhito how he wants to fill that role. He made it very clear from the beginning that he wants to step into the footsteps of his father, Akihito, who already tried to be close to his people. And we can already see it. I guess you know that Japan was hit quite violently by a typhoon last week and Naruhito and his wife, uh, Empress Masako, they traveled to the affected region to visit the people, to talk to the people. And that shows that he actually also tries to be close to his citizens. This is not going to be a very easy job because the imperial household family is a rather, let's say, strict club and life behind palace walls, which we can see just behind me, it's like living in a golden cage. 
Yes, we're seeing some of that uh, ceremony that uh, took place, the enthronement ceremony. We get a sense of, of just how deeply steeped in tradition the, the house of, uh, of the royalty is there. Now, Japan is one of the oldest monarchies in the world. What status does the royal house have in the country? Well, of course, the emperor doesn't have any political power anymore, but still he has, he's a very strong symbol of the state and of unity. And a Japanese colleague of mine, a Japanese journalist, explained it to me quite well. He told me while the government under Shinzo Abe represents the, the harshness, the steerness of Japan also towards other countries, the the emperor is more like a bumper. He represents love and mildness. And I wanted to know from especially young people what the emperor, the imperial family still represents for them. And they were answering me, well, actually nothing. They have nothing to do with my personal life. But yet, whenever we get news from the emperor, it kind of creates a deep feeling of inner peace. So, no political power, but still a very strong symbol of love, mildness, and unification. Catalina, thank you very much for that. That was Catalina von Trushenthaler from Germany's ARD studio in Tokyo. Yeah, I think that's really fascinating. And um, more I think about the emperor system, I came to think that as long as this system continues to exist, fascism can be restored like i think it's like you said earlier like it's it does even though it's not the same like it's you know it's more or less symbolic but still works as a superstructure and ideological state apparatus that maintains the sense of japaneseness right the emperor mm -hmm. so ideological role of like um a lot of the critics of the emperor system today like activists you know we saw a lot of protests before the reiwa emperor came to the throne you know like it's it has the effect of like diluting the contradictions, right? Like sort of creating this nationalist myth about Japanese people, you know, this mythical wholeness of Japanese people and homogeneity and, and things like that. So, yeah, I think it's really, I think it this needs to be abolished, not just sort of as a democratic move, but also sort of dispel any myth about this sense of Japanese-ness. Yeah, I think, I think there's a, I think, you know, returning to a, a point that we were discussing earlier, you know, this is, again, the way that we understand how power operates is going to, you know, inform our evaluation of either certain state apparatuses or, you know, certain social phenomenon. And, and, in, and in this case, um, you know, if we think of power as just this thing that, you know, acts upon us uh, oftentimes in a repressive manner and that the special higher police, uh, you know, in the pre-war period were around every corner, you know, surveilling people and, you know, suppressing those who, you know, possibly were holding dangerous thoughts and these kinds of things. And because they've been eradicated and because of the reforms that were carried out from 45 to, you know, 52, et cetera, et cetera, you know, that, that that's of the past and now we're of the present. But I think um, as scholars as varied as, you know, somebody kind of a, a more conventional uh, legal historian like Okudaida Yasuhiro, who puts forth this idea of like the emperor sister, uh, emperor system within. So the Uchinado Tenosei, or even, you know, somebody like uh, Yoshimi Shunya, you know, who talks about a mass mediated 
emperor system, um, we may think, you know, this is kind of diffused now. And so, you know, the images of the imperial family visiting with victims of natural disasters and these kinds of things has fundamentally changed um, the the emperor system and its operations and its kind of effects within, um, you know, society. But, you know, for Yoshimi and Okudaida and, and many other um, um, scholars and, and activists, they see this kind of diffusion as, as almost even having more reach than in the pre-war period in which, you know, supposedly the emperor system was absolute and the, and the, the emperor was, you know, sovereign and, you know, of divine origin and et cetera, et cetera, you know, now in the post-war, just a human, just a symbol, um, you know, its power has been deactivated, but actually, you know, through cultural studies and whatnot, cultural theory, you know, we know how more pervasive that is, uh, that kind of power operating. Um, I have a, a friend and colleague by the name of Phil Caffin who works in Japanese film studies. And he's done some pretty interesting stuff about the, the emperor system um, and, you know, the Heisei emperor uh, asking uh, for the ability indirectly because he couldn't legally do so for the ability to retire before his, his death, um, you know, cause he had concerns about his, his capabilities of performing his duties as the symbol of the nation. Right. Um, and here he is appearing on TV screens, you know, throughout shopping districts and on, on TVs and, and um, Caffin, you know, argues where if before you were supposed to kind of like look away, like you, 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 you know, you bowed and didn't actually look at the imperial family or the emperor when they went by. Now uh, we cannot not look, you know, like you must, like if you're, if you're in a shopping district, you may just be waiting for somebody outside of like, you know, Shinjuku station uh, and you look up and, you know, there, there's the Heisei emperor, you know, asking uh, for the ability to step down. Um, you know, but the, the diffusion of the imperial image is, is, is everywhere through, you know, TV and, and broadcast and, and these kinds of things. And so I think, I think, um, Caffin presents a, a pretty interesting, um, problem for us to, to consider, you know, that the ability of like, it's inescapable that this image is, you know, so diffuse within the media, you know, ecology, uh, at, at specific points. And what does that mean, you know, versus, you know, earlier forms in which we, retroactively have put ascribed that kind of image much more power whether it was you know that the emperor's image in the imperial rescript on education hung in every school uh, room apparently that was going to have an effect on that classroom but here we are you know out in public in a shopping district probably going to an izakaya or something and you know not only on your phone but also on the the television advertisement screens around you you know the emperor's image <laughs> appears right Okay, I think that brings us to the conclusion of uh, this interview. Uh, before you go, um, can you tell us what you're working on currently and where can uh, where listeners can find your work? Sure. So the bulk of our discussion today revolved around uh, my uh, book on the peace preservation law. That book's called uh, Thought Crime ideology and state power in interwar Japan. It was published by uh, Duke University Press in 2019. 
Um, and and uh, some of my other work, if you know, if you go to my faculty page at Middlebury College, there'll there'll be a link um, to uh, some journal articles and chapters in PDF form that that I have posted to uh, a website. Um, what I'm working on now uh, is kind of naturally evolved out of the first book, um, and that's focusing on police power. So if the if the first book was looking at the justice ministry and criminal reform policies and how they were directed at political criminals in the interwar period. Um, it was through that research that I became particularly interested in police power just more generally. So not necessarily the policing of politics, but just the ubiquity of police power and its administrative interventions um, in modern society and particularly uh, in Japan. And so I'm working uh, on a new book now that looks at uh, police power in modern Japan. I've framed it between 1870 and 1970. The reason why I stop it in the 1970s is because that's the exact time in which foreign scholars and foreign police observers started celebrating the Japanese police system and uh, the apparent low crime rates um, of post-war Japan at that time, which seemed to be going in completely different directions from where uh, the United Kingdom, uh, the United States and stuff, and, and thus uh, many scholars, uh, you know, celebrated uh, the Japanese um, police success story. Uh, and so as one way to kind of try and rethink that and to kind of challenge that, um, that celebratory scholarship from the 1970s and 1980s, which is still the main sources in English on the Japanese police, uh, you know, I wanted to think of that problem historically um, and think about the transformations both in the police agency and the application of, you know, this unique form of police power, but also how the police have conceptualized their own power. So almost kind of like an intellectual or cultural history of how the police are represented uh, and how police power is conceptualized. So that's going to be the, the next book. And um, because of the ubiquity of police power, of course, uh, <laughs> it means there's a lot of material to look over. Uh, and so I'm just starting the project. So it's going to be, uh, you know, many years before I'm able to complete it, but um, it's a natural outgrowth out of the first one. Yeah, that sounds fascinating. And I look forward to reading it patiently, even though it might take a while. And uh, <laughs> But it's really a worthwhile project. And yeah, I really appreciate the work you do and really help me think through the Japanese fascism and the repression and ideology. Um, so yeah, thank you so much for coming on to the show, uh, Dr. Max Ward. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Kolta, for this invitation and, and uh, giving me this opportunity to, uh, uh, you know, talk about these important topics and, and share my research. Mm -hmm.